Welcome to uh, the LSE, for those of you who are not from the LSE, and welcome to the theatre for, uh, uh, for those of you who are. Um, my name is Michael Jacobs, I'm visiting professor in uh, the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment here at the LSE, and it's our pleasure uh, to welcome this evening uh, David Kennedy, who is Chief Executive of the Committee on Climate Change. Um, some of you, uh, I'm sure, are aware of what the Committee on Climate Change is. It's a rather interesting and innovative institution, um, perhaps rather surprisingly created by uh, the government. Um, the Committee on Climate Change uh, has its origins in the Climate Change Act, which was passed in 2008 by the Labour government with all party support. Um, I was in the government uh, uh, at the time, and I probably still have the envelope on the back of which we uh, invented the Committee on Climate Change and all the other part of, uh, parts of the Act. Um, uh, at the time, we realised that we needed something which would provide some external authority for governments to make difficult decisions on climate change for two reasons. One was we thought that if we were in favour of the policies but the other parties uh, or the public or the media were not, some independent authoritative body would give us greater strength in us in government in doing it. Um, and secondly, we realised, with I think some uh, progressive thinking, that where we were ourselves against what should be done in climate change policy, where the government itself was rather nervous about doing something, similarly it would be useful to have an external body uh, applying some uh, uh, authoritative pressure on government. It was, however, a, a very skeletal thing in its outline. We were fortunate enough that we got uh, Adair Turner to chair it, and Adair Turner, um, I think, has provided um, uh, terrific leadership of it. Um, and then we were all extraordinarily fortunate that David Kennedy agreed to be its chief executive. David is an economist. He did his PhD here at the LSE, apparently on the economics of bus privatisation, he's just told me. Um, which, if he ever finishes at the, the uh, uh, Climate Change Committee, you could look at the economics of, of re-regulation. Um, uh, uh, he then went on uh, in his career principally to be uh, an, uh, in, with public investment banks, both at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which operates in, uh, uh, in Eastern, Eastern Europe and Western Asia, um, and then at the World Bank. And then came back, uh, had a brief time in government, and then uh, joined the Committee on Climate Change as its, as its chief executive. And under Adair Turner and David Kennedy, the, the Committee on Climate Change has become uh, a very powerful, very authoritative, and very interesting institution. Um, and David, I hope, in describing uh, the way in which Britain is uh, at least partially decarbonising, will, I hope, give us some sense of what the Committee on Climate Change does and how it does it. Um, it is very interestingly a model that has been uh, looked at very closely by many other uh, governments around the world. In fact, the whole Climate Change Act, which was the first of its kind, the first to put statutory carbon targets um, uh, to impose them on government and to create the framework for a comprehensive climate change um, uh, strategy. Um, and the Committee on Climate Change has been one of the parts of it that has attracted most attention from around the world. So what we're going to do, uh, David is going to speak for, uh, I think, about 40 minutes. There will then be time for questions um, and comments, brief ones, I hope, from the audience. And we're aiming to finish uh, sometime before 8, depending on how interesting you lot are in asking your questions. So without further ado, why don't I just let you get on with it. David Kennedy, um, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, uh, good evening everybody. So, as Michael says, I'm going to talk about decarbonizing uh, Britain and 
I'm going to focus on the opportunities opportunities, sorry, and challenges building a low-carbon economy. Now, I'm going to start with just telling you a bit about what the Climate Change Act asks my organisation to do, and then I'll go into, well, how have we responded to the various duties that we have under the Climate Change Act. So, I think you can divide what we do into three sets of things. One is we advise on the level of ambition. Two, uh, we check, are we on track to deliver that ambition? And then three, we can be asked about uh, specific topics. So, if I just take each of those in turn. When we're asked to advise on the level of ambition, uh, you can think of us as being uh, something like an energy regulator. So the energy regulator sets a limit on the energy price. You can think of us a little bit like being the Monetary Policy Committee, where they set the level on the interest rate in the economy. We set, uh, we advise, sorry, on the uh, limit for carbon in the UK. I should differentiate. I said we set. We actually do advise. We don't set uh, the limit on carbon. It would be inappropriate, I think, for an independent body to be setting the limit on carbon, given the implications that the carbon limit has across all of the sectors of the economy. We would be uh, practically running the economy if we could make that decision. But we advise, and it's very difficult, actually, under the Climate Change Act for the, the government, uh, if we do our job properly, it's very difficult for the government not to accept our advice and to date, they have accepted all of our advice over the last three years or so. So, uh, as regards ambition, well, we've advised on the 2050 target for the UK, the 80% emissions reduction. I'll talk about that a bit more uh, in a minute. Uh, we were asked, should it be 60%? Should it be 80%? Uh, we were asked, should it be uh, for carbon dioxide or all greenhouse gases? We were asked, should international aviation and shipping be included in that target? Should it be a target for domestic emissions reductions? or uh, should it be for uh, emissions plus the purchase of offset credits in other countries. And then there's this idea of carbon budgets that's introduced under the Climate Change Act. That's limits on five-year emissions in the UK. And we've advised on those limits going uh, 20, 2008 sorry, to 12, 13 to 17, 18 to 22, and 23 to 27. And those budgets are all in the legislation now. And again, I'll come on to those. When we are advising the government on appropriate ambition, we're not just focused on getting emissions down and the science. There's a set of things that we need to take into account, and that set of things is listed on the right-hand slide, right-hand side of the slide, sorry, there. And so we think about competitiveness, for example, security of supply and of fuel poverty and, and other factors. Uh, I've said that the second part of our work is to uh, not just advise on the appropriate ambition, but also then to say and to report to Parliament every year on how we're doing reducing our emissions. It's no good just setting ambitious targets and not delivering them. The key is in delivering them. So a lot of our work over the last three years has been on developing a framework for monitoring progress, uh, applying that framework, and then drawing out implications in terms of what should we do differently to meet uh, carbon budgets going forward. And then I've said the third set of things that we do is uh, specific pieces of work uh, that the government requests from us or the devolved administration, so Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. And some of the things we've done, some of the big reviews we've done uh, over the last three years there are a review of aviation and the future of aviation in the UK. Uh, we have done a renewable energy review which was commissioned under the coalition agreement. We've looked at uh, the approach to energy efficiency improvement in the UK and we're just about in the next day or two and you may see it in some of the newspapers at least, and we're just about to uh, publish a report on the future of international shipping and implications for UK carbon budget. So that's what we're asked to do. And so I'm going to move on now and talk about, well, what have we done in response to the, 
uh, that what have we advised the government. And I'm going to do that, first of all, talking about the 2050 target. Now, the 2050 target is only interesting insofar as it has implications for things that are uh, closer to us in time now. So 2050 is a long time away, but actually uh, that 2050 target anchors all of our thinking about what should we do over the next decade and two decades. So I'll move on to an indicative target for uh, 2030, and then I'll draw from that what is an appropriate path of carbon budgets over the next uh, couple of decades, and those, as I've said, are now in the legislation. I'll talk about budget costs and benefits, which are crucial. They always have been crucial. Uh, I think there's been more of a focus on costs uh, and impacts, energy price impacts, competitiveness impacts, uh, in recent months, given the economic downturn, so I will talk about those. And then I'll finish with, well, what are the policies that will drive the step change that we need uh, in the pace of emissions reduction? So it's all about changing incentives. We need uh, policies that will drive us to be on this low-carbon path. Now, let me start with the climate science. And a year or two ago, I wouldn't have bothered with the climate science anymore. I thought, uh, as Ed Miliband used to say, well, I think everybody accepts now the climate science and we can move on and think about what do we need to do to reduce our emissions. But going into Copenhagen, there were the controversies raised, and I think they haven't really died away. So still there are lots of questions, particularly for uh, people like my mum, who doesn't know anything about the climate science but will read the paper. Uh, it will tell her that the science is falling apart, that there isn't a consensus anymore, that we're about to give up on tackling climate change because uh, it's just a theory. Now, my organisation, when we advise the government, is required uh, to look very closely at the climate science. We have eminent science scientists on the committee, so we've got Lord May, former president of the Royal Society, we've got Lord Krebs, who's the head of the uh, House of Lords Science Committee, we've got Sir Brian Hoskins, who's a, uh, a very well-regarded climate scientist, and then we've got bright young climate scientists who work for me on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, We recently, going into our advice on the fourth carbon budget, looked uh, in great detail at the 200 years of literature on climate science, but we also uh, focused on the 500 uh, peer-reviewed articles that have come through since 2008. And what that review told us was summarised on this slide. So climate change is happening. We can measure that, and we can be very confident that the planet has warmed up in the last 150 years. Second thing is, well, you can't explain that in terms of uh, non-human factors. So although... Uh, changing solar activity has caused climate change in the past. We can't explain what we've seen over the last 150 years in those terms. So we can be confident that much of what we've seen is highly likely to be due to human activity. Now, the next point is where we get less confident and less certain that uh, without any action, well, clearly there is a risk of dangerous climate change with adverse welfare impacts for people and for ecosystems as well. Uh, but we, we can't say with any degree of precision what those impacts are. So there's a, a, an uncertain relationship between uh, the level of emissions and the degree of temperature change. There's an uncertain relationship between temperature change and climate change and damages to human welfare and to ecosystems. And at this point, you'll find climate skeptics will say, it's so uncertain, let's not do anything. Well, let's learn more, let's wait and see. Uh, but for us, that isn't the appropriate way forward. We know there is a significant risk 
of very dangerous impacts that will be very bad for human welfare. And the appropriate course of action when you're faced with those kind of risks is to take out an insurance policy. That's what normal people do in their everyday, everyday life. And the carbon budgets are our insurance policy against these risks of pretty bad things happening in the future. And the good news around that story is we can still limit the risks of dangerous climate change if we get on that low carbon path uh, pretty soon. Now, these are the kind of things we thought about when we advised on the 80% emissions reduction target. So we looked at the global picture, we looked at the risks uh, globally. And again, I put this up now because one of the things that people often say to me is, well, times are pretty difficult at the moment. Uh, you're saying we should decarbonize the power sector. You're saying we should uh, move towards having electric vehicles. But why don't we trade that off? It's too expensive. We can't do it. Let's take a 10-year break and trade off against the degree of climate change. And I think people who say that don't realize what they're saying we should trade off with. We're saying trade off against, for example, uh, increased flooding in countries like Bangladesh. We're saying trade off against uh, increased droughts in sub-Saharan Africa. We're saying trade off against the kind of resource uh, driven conflicts that we've seen in Sudan. And for me, I think that's not a trade-off uh, that we should be making. Then you, you find other people who say, well, it will be very bad for the world, but it won't be that bad for the UK. Uh, and I think that's not actually the case. So I don't want to overplay the impacts of dangerous climate change for the UK. But there will be impacts. And if there was a four-degree warming, five-degree, six-degree, for example, well, there would be increased risk of floods. There would be increased droughts here. There'd be increased heat waves. And if you look at the numbers, you know, for that kind of person, for the person who says, I don't care about the rest of the world, if you add to that, well, I don't care about the rest of the world, and if things go wrong there, we can uh, pull down the shutters and be totally isolated from a, a world where there is uh, resource conflict and mass migration, for example. If we can totally isolate ourselves from that, if I only focus on the impacts in the UK, well, again, the mitigation costs and the damage costs at the UK level uh, it still justifies action and the kind of action that's embodied in our carbon budget. So, now, going from that assessment of damages to what is an appropriate climate objective, well, you can take the economist's approach, the approach that was one of the approaches in the Stern Review, and that is to do a cost-benefit analysis. You can use what's called an integrated assessment model, and out of that you can try to work out what is the optimal uh, path that balances the mitigation costs uh, against the benefits, so the avoided damages uh, of a low-carbon strategy. And that is one thing we looked at. We thought that the Stern Review did that job very well. Uh, um, we actually focused on a different approach, which was a multi-criteria analysis. We looked at the things, at the damages that might happen in different states of the world. And then we said, well, what is it that a reasonable person, if you could, uh, would aim to avoid there? And we framed an objective, and it's written there, that we should both try to keep... Uh, central estimates of temperature change in the future close to two degrees, but actually more important for us, and I think this is the thing we added to a climate objective, is we're very uh, worried about that dangerous climate change, which is four degrees, five degrees, and six degrees. Now, people come back and say two degrees is pretty dangerous, so maybe I should say we are very worried about very dangerous climate change, which is four, five, and six degrees. So for us, the objective should be to keep those uh, possibilities at very low levels. So we've said less than 1%. Now, we took that rule. We did check, by the way, that these kind of trajectories that you can see in the bottom part of the slide, that these trajectories, first of all, are feasible, and we did look at the costs of them, and I'll come on to the costs of mitigation uh, later. So you end up in the same place. If you were looking at the costs and benefits of this kind of objective, they would 
uh, be in favour of uh, acting in the way that we've suggested. The next thing we did was we looked at global emissions trajectories that will uh, deliver that climate objective. And the ones that will deliver the objective are characterised by early peaking of global emissions. When I say early, it means before 2020 or thereabouts, followed by deep cuts uh, afterwards, resulting in a 50% emissions cut uh, in 2050. Uh, and you can see what that means in terms of gigatons. Uh, it's about 20 to 24 gigatons global emissions. Now, the story doesn't end there. We need to carry on reducing emissions beyond 2050. And you can see we think that by the end of the century, we need to get those down further to 8 to 10 gigatons. But there's a big challenge getting them down, first of all, to 20 to 24, which is our focus under the Climate Change Act. Now, given that reduction, the next step of the argument is, well, what is it appropriate for the UK to contribute to that global effort? And you, know, you can look at different burden-sharing methodologies, which we did, but in the end, we used Nick Stern's argument, and Nick uh, says, well, it's very hard to imagine a world in a global agreement to reduce emissions where the UK is above the global average as you get out to 2050. It may be the case that uh, we have to sign up to something where we are below the global average, but it's very hard to imagine that we can be above the global average in any plausible international agreement. So if that's the case, if our emissions in the UK can't be above the global average, which is uh, coming from that 20 to 24 gigatons, it's about two uh, tons per capita, then uh, that requires us in the UK to achieve an 80% emissions cut uh, in 2050 relative to 1990 levels. And that's where the target comes from in our Climate Change Act. So that's written on the face of this primary legislation. Now that target has to apply to all greenhouse gases. You can't just look at CO2 because we've got other very potent uh, greenhouse gases with warming effects potentially. And it needs to include aviation and shipping, which I'm not going to talk about in this presentation. If you want to ask me about avian, aviation and shipping, I've said we have done reviews in both of those sectors. You can't ignore them because they're too big, and if you did ignore them, you wouldn't achieve your climate objective. Now, this just gives you a sense of the challenge in getting those emissions down to two tonnes per capita. And I don't want to confuse people, but I've had to move on this slide into carbon dioxide rather than greenhouse gases. So previously, I was talking about the need to get to 20 to 24 gigatons, uh, just over two tonnes per capita in 2050. Now, the reason when we're looking at global emissions that you've got to look at carbon dioxide is because we don't have good data on greenhouse gas emissions. We do have good data on carbon dioxide emissions. Now, the left-hand side of this picture, I've noticed, doesn't have a key, so it's not very helpful. But what that says is... At the moment, there's about 30 gigatons emissions of carbon dioxide. And you know, within that 20 gigatons envelope for greenhouse gases, there's about 12 available for carbon dioxide. So we've got to get that 30 down to 12. Now, just to help you with that picture, the blue there is the United States, which is currently the second biggest emitter. The green is China. The purple uh, maroon color is the European Union. The red and the blue are... India and Russia, I'm not sure which order, but they're broadly the same. The yellow is Africa, and the grey is all the other countries. So that just gives you a sense of uh, what the challenge is by the different countries and regions in the world. If we look at particular countries, well, we can see that for the UK, we need to go from about uh, 10 tonnes per capita to something less than two uh, over the next four decades on carbon dioxide. If you look at the US, I think you, your first feeling would be, I'm very worried, because they've got a real challenge, haven't they? They've got to get down from 18 ish to two. 
but I think if they did all of the things which I'm going to suggest we should do to meet carbon budgets here, so if they decarbonise the power sector, if they decarbonise the transport sector, the, uh, the building sector, and they do that in tandem with the turnover of the capital stock, then they will be on the same path as, as us. And it still is feasible, I think, in the United States to get to that two tons per capita. If you look at China, well, I think there's an interesting story there. Obviously, there is a very significant increase in emissions per capita over the last few years. And if they carry on going in that direction and we carry on coming down, they'll overtake us soon. I think what that says to us is, well, China... Uh, in a global agreement will have to be on the downward path at some point in the not too distant future. I don't think in the next five years or even the next ten years China needs to be on the downward path but certainly as we get into the 2020s that is the challenge for China to start reducing its absolute emissions. At the moment it's focused on reducing its emissions intensity per GDP. Now here is a, a different way of looking at the challenge in the context of now the UK so I'm moving from the global to the UK. That shows you uh, the 80% emissions reduction target. We need to go from about 670 million tonnes of emissions in 2008. We need to get those down to 160. And there's a couple of things to say about that picture. The first of all is, well, at the moment, uh, there are plenty of offset credits available in European and global markets. So we can pay other countries to reduce emissions, and that's pretty cheap. So we can buy our way out of our uh, uh, carbon budgets, our emissions reductions, Obligations, But that, for us, will not be the case in the future. So certainly, as you get to 2050, as all countries are subject to very tight carbon constraints, then it's hard to see who will be selling in order that we can buy. And so for us, a, an appropriate planning assumption is that we will achieve this largely, if not fully, through domestic emissions reductions. Now, that means, if you look at the left-hand side of the picture, that we need to take most, if not all, of the emissions out of all of these key emitting sectors, so power generation, transport, uh, emissions from heating our buildings. Uh, it's important to recognise, however, that there are some sectors which we've called hard to treat, so we can't tell a story about how we can reduce aviation emissions by 80%. We can't tell a story how we can reduce shipping emissions by 80%. Uh, the same is true of agriculture, and the same may be true of industry, and that means, well, if we're going to achieve uh, this 80% emissions cut, if we're going to get squeezed within that 160 million tonnes envelope, then we've got to almost fully decarbonise power generation, surface transport and residential and commercial heat. And you'll see, as I move on to what we should be aiming to do over the next two decades in the UK, that is the focus of the strategy we have suggested and it is the focus of the government's approach as well. So, I've said 2050 is interesting insofar as it has implications for the period to 2050 and in fact the period uh, to 2030 is what we've been focused on most re recently in our advice to government. So I mean, what you can see there is uh, a pathway which goes through a 60% emissions cut in 2030 on the path to that 80% emissions cut. Now when you're thinking about what is it appropriate to do over the next two decades on the path to a 2050 cut, there are a number of different perspectives you can take. You can take a classic economist perspective which says, well, there's a set of things we can do. They're more expensive than the fossil fuel alternatives, but they may cost less than the carbon price. And if they do, we'll build them into our strategy. So that is certainly one approach we looked at. There's a second approach which says, well, if you want to be there in 2050, if you want to have fully decarbonized uh, the vehicle sector, for example, well, given the stock turnover, given the time it takes to develop technologies, to absorb those, to change behaviours, well, you've got to have made good progress 
by 2030 on absorbing low-carbon vehicles into the stock. Otherwise, by 2050, you're not going to meet that target. And the same is true in the building sector, where we need to move away from uh, gas boilers to heat pumps, for example. I'll talk about that in a minute. The same is true of decarbonizing the power sector. So that's a second approach. I mean, the alternative is that we, we don't be on this low-carbon path. It really questions then, you know, if we haven't decarbonized significantly by 2030, whether we could actually decarbonize by 2050. But certainly it will increase the cost if we don't act early. So a strategy where we invest in the wrong things, in the high carbon assets, which we then have to scrap quite soon after we've invested in them and quickly roll out low carbon assets, cannot make sense from an economic perspective. The third approach we take is to look at the science. And the science says, well, we're not concerned just about 2050. We're concerned about all of emissions from now to 2050. It's the cumulative emissions uh, which will determine the extent of climate change. And so you can look at the global path. You can derive a UK contribution to that global path. And then you can work out your uh, 2030 target and your carbon budget that way. And actually, all those three ways of thinking about things uh, bring you out in a very similar place. It's, it's round about this 60% emissions cut in 2030. And you can see from the numbers on the middle bar, which is the 2030 bar, that uh, most of the emissions reductions that we've built into this recommended target, most of those come in the, the power sector, in the building sector, and in the transport sector. So let me just dive in and focus on those three sectors for a minute. Now, the power sector has to be at the heart of uh, building a low-carbon economy. And it has to be at the heart for a number of reasons. One, because it is a major source of emissions. Two, because we have the opportunity to decarbonize the power sector and to do that in a cost-effective way. So there is a set of technologies which either we have at the moment or we're reasonably confident we'll have in future uh, which would allow us to decarbonize the power sector. And that set of technologies is nuclear power, it's renewable technologies, whether it's wind in this country, whether it's solar, maybe in this country, but uh, more likely in other countries. And it is carbon capture and storage, which you can apply both to coal and gas-fired generation. We're not fully confident about that technology, but it is very promising for the future. So we need to decarbonize the power sector because it's a significant emitter, because we've got the opportunity to do it, and because if we can decarbonize the power sector, that holds the key, actually, to decarbonization also of the transport sector through electric vehicles and through decarbonization of our heating buildings through moving back, uh, albeit to modern forms of electric heating in the future. Now, what you see in the top uh, left-hand uh, graph in this picture is we envisage that as you get into the 2020s and beyond that we'll see significantly increased demand for electricity. And that reflects this story of uh, rolling out low-carbon power-based uh, uh, technologies, so the vehicles and the heat, uh, and that's what drives that demand increase there. At the same time, uh, the bottom uh, graph there shows you that we envisage a very significant emissions reduction in power generation over the next two decades. So through a combination of investment in uh, nuclear, in wind, both onshore and offshore in this country, and uh, in CCS generation as well, we can get our emissions down from 500 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour, which is what they are currently, to about 50. So pretty much decarbonize that power sector fully. And the combination of those two things, so the rising electricity demand on the one hand, but also the falling carbon intensity, allows us to get very low emissions from the power sector in 2030. Now, if we can do that, I've said, well, we can then start to decarbonize the, power, the 
uh, transport sector. So let me focus in on cars, which dominate transport emissions. The story is similar, that over time, well, we expect to see a little bit of an increase in uh, miles travelled. Uh, and so we're not assuming that people become less mobile. Now, that forecast actually is an official forecast. It comes from the national transport model of the Department for Transport. And you can question it. You can uh, argue that maybe demand will be saturated as we get out to 2030. But we can tell our story even with increasing demand for uh, travel because there is a great opportunity over the next two decades to bring our emissions, which are the grams of CO2 per kilometre, uh, down very significantly. And we can do that in two ways. We can have more efficient uh, conventional cars, so with combustion engines, and that is something that's happening at the moment and will happen increasingly over the next decade. And beyond that, we can start to uh, see more significant penetration of electric vehicles, and those electric vehicles are either low or zero carbon if we've decarbonized the power sector. The combination of those things, so rising uh, miles traveled, rising car demand, but also more fuel-efficient cars gives you very significant emissions reductions in this sector over the next two decades. And this just gives you a snapshot of what could drive those pictures that I've just shown you, uh, what could drive that in 2030. So by then, we've suggested that maybe about 40% of people would still be buying a conventional car, but uh, the majority of people at that time, if we're going to be on track to meeting carbon budgets, the majority will have to be buying a low-carbon vehicle that's not running on a conventional engine. And there we've got an, an illustration, 40% of people buying plug-in hybrids, so not the Prius that you can get now, but the plug-in Prius that you'll be able to get next year. And then pure electric vehicles, the kind that are coming to market at the moment, the Nissan Leaf, uh, the Renault Fluence, which will come to market next year, the IMEF, and, and a range of other vehicles there. So uh, most people in 2030 will have to be buying a low-carbon vehicle if we're to be on this low-carbon path. Having said that, there is a a stock flow effect here and with that purchase behaviour still the majority of people uh, will be driving a conventional car in 2030 so they in our uh, modelling and analysis will account for 70% uh, of miles at that time but if we're on this path if we're absorbing increasing amounts of uh, low carbon vehicles into the fleet over time as you get into the 2030s and 2040 and 2040s you've got a decarbonised car stock, assuming that you've got this low uh, carbon power system. If we move on to buildings, I've got this uh, picture set out in terms of residential emissions, first of all, and then non-residential emissions. You can see residential emissions dominate uh, non-residential uh, emissions in the building sector. Now, what happens in residential, uh, in our modelling, in our recommendations to government, in the carbon budgets that are now legislated, is that uh, emissions go down between 2009 and 2030. You can see there's a different height of those two bars and the difference in height there uh, is around energy efficiency improvement that reduces uh, demand and reduces emissions. And then after we've done the energy efficiency improvement, which I'll talk about a, a bit more uh, in a minute, after we've done that, there's a great opportunity to move to low carbon forms of heat in the residential sector. And you can see there that the red and the orange blocks tell you uh, we think the biggest opportunity is in people having electric heating, electric heat pumps and within that air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps. And then if we move uh, from the residential sector, if we look at the non-residential sector, so offices, uh, buildings like this one, well, there is an opportunity for energy efficiency improvement. We do expect in the non-residential sector there will be some demand growth just because of economic growth. 
we do think there's a great opportunity to offset that uh, pretty much fully through energy efficiency improvement. But then there is a great opportunity to, again, move to these low-carbon forms of heat uh, in the uh, non-residential sector, and those low-carbon forms of heat are the same as for the residential sector. It's uh, heat pumps, it's air source heat pumps, and it's ground source heat pumps. And again, you can see we've taken big chunks out of those emissions if we are successful following this path. If I come back up from the sectoral picture and look at the economy-wide picture, and so this is what I've just shown you a few slides ago, I've added something to it. So if we can get to a 60% emissions cut in 2030, people have said the first reaction is, well, 60% in 2030 on the path to 80% in 2050. It sounds very aggressive. It sounds front-loaded to me. But if you take where we are now, which is at below 1990 levels, and you look at the annual emissions reductions on this path, you can see, well, there's about a 3% annual emissions reduction required over the next uh, two decades to reach this target, but it leaves you a 5% annual emissions reduction from 2030 to 2050. And for us, well, that is a degree of back-ending which you can tell a story about, that given the technologies we think will be available, given the capital stock turnover, then you can go in this back-ended path, but anything more back-ended if you start to look at emissions reductions exceeding 5% every year after 2030, we think you've got a problem because it's not really feasible anymore. You're in the land of fairy tales that we can uh, really achieve that 80% emissions cut. So this might appear front-loaded. Actually, it's back-ended, and it's as back-ended as you can get and still be credible uh, on this low-carbon path. Now, the 2030 target is not something we were asked under the Climate Change Act to advise on. It was a device we used to frame the path over the next two decades, and then we picked off from that path uh, what is the appropriate limit on carbon, the carbon budget for uh, 2023 to 27. And this just shows you uh, the fourth carbon budget, which was legislated after a bit of back and forth uh, over the summer, uh, and that limit is 1,950 megatons. And you can see how that follows from the first three carbon budgets, which are currently legislated, those are the orange budgets, and the green, uh, the green bars there are what we think uh, we would commit to if the European Union moves from its current level of ambition to uh, a 30% emissions reduction target. So there's a commitment on the part of the UK that we would change our carbon budgets. I think the only thing I'd say there is if we are coming off the third carbon budget at the orange bar, it's going to be very challenging to... Uh, deliver that blue bar. And so what we've said to the government is uh, whether or not we change that legislated third budget, we're going to have to outperform it. Otherwise, we're not on track to deliver that fourth carbon budget. Okay, now, the key thing I've said is costs. And so I've said there was a bit of back and forth in the Cabinet. This was pretty high profile at the time, so in the first half of the year, where the government had to consider our advice. It had to decide, did it want to commit to this very ambitious target, the 1,950 uh, megatons, which the, the headline for that, by the way, is a 50% emissions cut in 2025 relative to 1990 levels. So it came out in the papers that there, there were some supporters of this, and the supporters were uh, Chris Hume, certainly, Caroline Spellman, William Haig, uh, and Oliver Letwin was another supporter. And then there were people who were a bit more cautious or very opposed to what we'd suggested, and they were Vince Cable and George Osborne and, and Philip Hammond. And there was a lot of debate, and the debate centred around what I'm going to talk about in the next few slides. It was around the costs, which are very sensitive in the middle of a, a downturn in the economy, and the energy price impacts 
which again are very high on people's concerns at the moment if you look at the survey evidence and the competitiveness impact. So let me take each of those in turn. This picture shows you well, what are the costs over time of meeting the carbon budgets that are now in the legislation. And you can see, well, they, they do rise to about 1% uh, or slightly less than 1% of GDP by 2030. And you can see, actually, they increase pretty slowly, and the number is still pretty low as you get to 2015. There is an increase uh, between 2015 and 2020, but we're still only about 0.4% below uh, what GDP would otherwise be if we're not on the low-carbon path. And then you see a significant increase rising towards 1% as you get out to uh, 2030. So that is one of the things that ease the concerns of people who are very focused on what is GDP going to be over the next year, two and three years. Well, GDP is not going to be any lower because we're on this low carbon path. And if you look further out in time, well, GDP will be lower, but the alternative is a different and more back-ended path, which will be more expensive. So the economic arguments are very strong to, to be on this path. Now, what does that mean? Uh, if GDP is going to be 1%, uh, lower in 2030 than it would otherwise be if we're not on the low carbon path. Well, one of the ways of representing that is as a, a, a marginally lower growth rate over the next four, well, I'm talking about 2030. This picture shows you uh, the, the, the path out to 2050, but the story is the same. If there's a 1% cost, that is a, a shading of the growth rate that we would expect over the next four decades. We're not expecting to grow this year or next year, but we are expecting to grow uh, in the second half of this decade and in the four decades out to uh, 2050. So uh, this is a, a marginally lower growth rate. Uh, does that have a very significant impact on welfare in this country or other countries? I would argue it has uh, uh, an insignificant, if any, impact on welfare over the next four decades. Now, when Adair Turner says that, it's usually very controversial and people come back and ask him about it. So if anybody wants to ask me about it, I'm happy to debate that as we go into the, the questions. But for me, a shading of the growth rate uh, is something we should accept. When you compare it against the alternative, you don't shade the growth rate, but you are then open to the risks and the damages of dangerous climate change, which are far worse. Now, it's one thing looking at the macro costs, but then the next thing is, well, where do those costs fall? What are the sectors that will have to bear them? So this is the same picture that I've just shown you, but it gives you a, a sectoral distribution of those costs. And so what you can see there is that, well, most of the costs fall in the power sector. They are about power sector decarbonisation, and there is an opportunity, at least partially, to offset them through energy efficiency improvement. Now, for anybody who's going to triangulate this slide with the next one and the one after and the one after that, I should say that this overstates the cost of power sector decarbonisation. It's a, an old slide, and since we did it, the... Uh, projections of the gas price have increased. So that means that the cost of power sector decarbonisation are less than shown in this slide. The other consequence of changing the gas price forecast is that the energy efficiency improvement opportunity actually is bigger than is shown on this. And you'll see why I've explained that uh, in the next couple of slides. So most of the costs occur in the power sector, and that tells you, well, electricity prices are going to have to be higher in order to meet carbon budgets, certainly over time. And again, the costs are not increasing very significantly to 2015, but as you get to certainly 2025, uh, there is a difference in uh, the cost at that time to the cost now, which will show up in higher electricity prices. And as I've said, if you look at the survey evidence, people say, what is top of your list of concerns or your top two or three 
At the moment, all of the surveys say people are really worried about energy prices, pretty much more than anything else. So this has been a lightning rod for broader concerns about the current economic situation, which is very important when you're thinking about low carbon because it changes the politics. And at the moment, the politics is very negative uh, around this low carbon. And it's negative partly because of the uh, energy price impacts. But let me tell you what those are. Let me demystify them, and I think the problem is around energy price impacts that there's a lot of misinformation put out there in the public domain through various parts of the media, and this is what the facts tell us. So at the moment, low carbon accounts for a small proportion of the electricity, but about £40 relative to a typical bill of £400. And what we've seen in the last two or three years are increases in electricity uh, bills running into the hundreds of pounds. So obviously if the low carbon component is only £40, it cannot have driven the electricity price increases we've seen uh, in the last couple of years. And actually, when you look at what has driven, it's the change in gas prices, which is not surprising given that gas uh, costs dominate the total costs in the power sector. So at the moment, low carbon is not driving what we see with the electricity prices, although some people would have you believe it is. Now, if you project forward to 2020, where there will be additional costs, particularly around the financing of investment in offshore wind. Well, it will take the low carbon component in our analysis up to about £100 from a total bill of £500. So at that time, uh, we'd expect the low carbon component of electricity bills uh, to be about 20%. And I'm not going to say that's low, I'm not going to say it's high, that's what it is. It's about £100 from a bill of £500. It compares to uh, £40 from 400 at the moment, so a £60 increase because of low carbon over the next decade. Then if you think about, well, energy bills are not just electricity, actually most of the energy bill for the typical house in the UK is around heating, it's around burning gas in our boilers to keep our houses warm uh, in the winter. And you can see that what dominates the uh, heat bill at the moment is the cost of gas. And again, the low carbon component within the heat bill uh, which is only for financing energy efficiency improvement uh, through something called the, the, the supplier obligation, well, that is very small relative to the total. So, again, changes in the heat bill for households over the last uh, couple of years have not been driven by low carbon. And in the future, well, we wouldn't expect to see any change in that. So there isn't any reason to, to believe that the low carbon component of the heat bill at the moment should be any bigger in 2020 uh, relative to now. So the story is one of electricity prices will go up because of low carbon, heat prices won't. And then if you look at the uh, total energy bill impact, well this shows you the combination of electricity bills and heat bills together and you can see that you've got this low carbon component just over £100 uh, in 2020 we estimate relative to a bill in excess of £1,200. And here's the good news story and it doesn't get out there. The energy efficiency opportunity is bigger uh, than that low carbon green component in the 2020 left hand bar there. So there is more opportunity to bring down bills than the electricity price impact will increase bills. So the net of pursuing these low carbon policies of meeting carbon budgets for us, for households on average, uh, can be positive, not negative. That's a positive story to tell. It's not one that resonates, at least in all of the media at the moment, and certainly my organisation is thinking about how can we change that narrative because the narrative is wrong and it's not helpful uh, in terms of getting political support for the low carbon agenda at the moment. 
Now, the second thing that came out, this was a real concern for Vince Cable when he was thinking about should they accept the fourth carbon budget. He was very worried about competitiveness impacts. I think we've got to be clear here. I mean, some people give the impression that if we meet our carbon budgets, we'll be closing down the whole of the UK economy. And that's clearly not the case. The only industries that competitiveness impacts are relevant to are energy-intensive industries where energy costs are a significant proportion of total costs. And this picture shows you what those industries are. It shows you uh, how much they account for uh, uh, as a percent of GDP. And these industries together account for about 1% of UK GDP, about 1% of UK employment, and about 15% of UK emissions. So they are important. Certainly we wouldn't want to leak 15% of our emissions to other countries with different environmental standards. Uh, they're important from an economic point of view, particularly when you look at local economies. So Tata Steel has a local economy which is dependent on Tata Steel and would be uh, damaged without it. So I wouldn't understate the economic importance, but at the same time, I don't want to overstate the importance of these industries. So that's the first thing to say. Second thing is, well, you've got to think about uh, the uh, direct emissions impacts here and the indirect, which is the electricity related. Now, all of these industries within the European framework are protected. So although they're subject to a carbon price, they are given free allowances, which effectively mean they're not subject to a carbon price. And so there isn't any danger of leakage through things uh, related to direct emissions. So that's the burning of fossil fuels. The only risk for UK companies are those which are electricity intensive, which are subject to a rising electricity price over the next decade, and which you can see on this picture uh, are uh, iron and steel, for example, aluminium, chemicals, and possibly pulp and paper as well. So a very small number of industries are subject to uh, real competitiveness risks, real risks of leakage to production in other countries because of what we are doing over the next decade or so. And our message to Vince Cable, to the government, when we were having these debates as well, there isn't any point in putting the price up for these industries and driving them to other countries, so let's find ways of protecting them. And there's plenty of things we can do. We can offset the carbon tax for those industries. We can exempt them from uh, uh, costs related to financing investment in renewables. And that is what they do in other countries anyway. So we suggested this to the government, and the government... Uh, accepted our advice, and you will see that when they legislated the fourth carbon budget, they said they would be looking at providing protection to a small number of energy and electricity intensive industries. But I think the key message there is the competitiveness impacts. Let's not overplay them, and to the extent there are some, we can manage them. So there isn't a, a, a rationale to depart from ambitious carbon budgets because of these competitiveness impacts. I've talked there about the costs and the energy price impacts and, and competitiveness, the negative. Let's just return to the positive and say, well, why does it make sense to do this again? So given all of those costs, well, the benefits outweigh the costs. There are benefits of building a sustainable economy, a low-carbon economy, and there we just revert back to the, the numbers in the Stern Review. The benefits there, the avoided damages of uh, building a low-carbon economy well outweigh the costs. There are benefits to building a resilient economy, so one where we don't have to rely on imported fossil fuels, where those fossil fuels may become increasingly scarce over the next four decades, particularly, uh, for example, if you think about uh, changing demand for uh, fossil fuels from China, which is really driving the price in the global market. So there are benefits of action. Now, if we're going to act, I've said we should act early. There are benefits of early action. I've said that early action will minimise the cost of economy decarbonisation. It 
leaves us not in the situation where we have to scrap capital and reinvest. That is a very expensive way forward. So early action has that benefit. Early action in the middle of a recession arguably will free up resources, it will help the bottom line of companies and it will create jobs to the extent that we are operating as an economy below capacity at the moment. In the longer term, there's a very big and lucrative global market for green goods and services, which if we act early, we can get into and we can derive benefits from that in the form of high-value jobs primarily. Okay, so up to now I've talked about the appropriate ambition. I've talked about what we should do to decarbonize our economy. I've talked about what are the costs involved, what are the energy price impacts if we can be on this low carbon path of decarbonizing the power sector, moving to low carbon forms of heat and transport. And I also said at the beginning it's very important not just to set ambitious targets. If that's all we do, we're grandstanding. Well, that's not very credible and will come undone very quickly. We've also got to make sure that we meet the targets that we're on with the downward path for emissions. And this is a picture which comes from our uh, progress reports to Parliament. So we report each year on progress reducing emissions to uh, the Parliament here in the UK. And we have reported three times up to now. So we've produced three annual reports. And the story that comes out in those reports, well, the first story that came out was, if you look at the years before the recession, so 2003 to uh, 2008, what you see is a broadly flat emissions trend for carbon dioxide. Uh, and the red line shows you, well, if we continued on that underlying trend, that's what we'd achieve. The green dotted line tells you that's what we need to achieve uh, if we're going to be on track to meet carbon budgets. So obviously there's a big difference between the red line and the green line, and that's why we came up with the, uh, the recommendation we need a step change in the pace of emissions reductions here in the UK if we are to achieve carbon budgets. And what's happened since then? Well, if you look at data for 2009, emissions went right down by about 10%, uh, and that was because of the recession. It wasn't because we suddenly became green. We suddenly started transforming our economy. Uh, if you look at what happened in 20. Uh, 10, so 2010, emissions actually went up, but that was because of the cold winter, uh, so there was a, a lot of energy consumption, particularly in the residential sector. The underlying trend through the recession and through that cold winter, if you strip out those effects, the underlying trend is still uh, picked up by that red dotted line, so we still need a step change in the pace of emissions reductions. And We've said that for three years. We didn't expect the step change to happen. Uh, till now. We don't expect it necessarily next year, but in the next two or three years, uh, if I'm standing here saying we need a step change, well, we're going to run out of time uh, and we're not going to be able to meet our carbon budgets. So we need to, to get on that path quickly. Being on that path is all about uh, bringing in new policies, I've said. So I'm going to finish just by talking about a couple of the key policies which will drive emissions reductions. Most policies, I mean, Michael said he was... Uh, part of the last government. The last government was on to the need for new policies and they were developing new policies to decarbonise the power sector, to decarbonise buildings, to develop electric vehicle markets and the new government has picked up where the last government left off and continued I think broadly in the same direction with some of those key policies. But let me just focus in on a couple of them. I've said power sector decarbonisation is absolutely key, it's central to economy-wide decarbonisation. Now, we in the UK pioneered electricity market liberalisation. We moved ahead of the world in uh, uh, opening up the market. And what we've ended up with is something that was very suitable, actually, for moving away from coal-fired generation to gas-fired generation. Uh, 
it is potentially suitable to getting investment in gas-fired generation, but it will not bring forward, we don't think, investment in low-carbon generation. So this picture shows you a simulation. The red line there is what we should aim to do, if you look at the economics of the various technologies uh, against the carbon price. The blue line is what you would expect to happen uh, in terms of investment under the current market conditions. The blue line, obviously, in terms of carbon intensity, is well above the red line, and the difference between the two is that the blue line is driven by investment in gas generation over the next decade or so. The red line has very significant investment in uh, the various low-carbon technologies. Now, why is it that under the current market arrangements we wouldn't expect to see low-carbon investments? Well, if you think about somebody uh, making a decision to invest in nuclear power generation, for example, there's all these risks which are at the top bullet point that they've got to face. There's a carbon price risk. Uh, highly uncertain what the carbon price will be. There's the gas price risk. Gas prices may be high in the future. They may be low. If they're low, then you've got a problem with a nuclear investment. There's demand risks. I've said that we should be aiming to build an economy where there's increased electricity demand. But if you're EDF or another energy company looking at the nuclear investment, you can't be confident that will happen because it needs government policies to drive uh, the demand increases in those other sectors. So given that set of risks, you wouldn't expect the kind of investments that we need to happen to come forward. Uh, the appropriate way uh, forward, given uh, the, the problem that we don't expect the current arrangements to uh, deliver the investments, is that we should look to reallocate the risks to those who uh, can best manage them. And the way to do that is for the government or a government body to take a view on how much low-carbon generation do we want and then to offer long-term contracts to secure investments in that low-carbon generation for us that will achieve power sector decarbonisation and it will do it at minimum cost, at a cost that is affordable. Now, the government has taken forward uh, our recommendations there and it has introduced a set of reforms which move away from the liberalised market to one that's based on long-term contracts. Now, Michael has told me I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to major on this picture, which shows you uh, there is a big opportunity for energy efficiency improvement in the UK. There is in other countries. That opportunity has existed for 40 years. We've been focused on it since the oil price shocks in the 1970s, and we haven't been very successful in addressing it. So we will need new policies there. And what I would say on, on the approach to energy efficiency, you can ask me more details about this. I think we can go two ways. One is we can leave it to the market. Uh, we can wait for Tesco. We can wait for B&Q to rise up, knock on everyone's door, and transform the building stock of the country. And if we do that, I think it won't happen. It hasn't happened in the past. There's no reason to think it would happen in the future. What we need and what my committee has recommended is a much more directed approach where you have crunchy policies, very strong incentives, where you oblige energy companies uh, to deliver the full range of these improvements. And that will spark partnerships between those companies, local authorities, construction companies, retailers, who will then transform the building stock on a house-by-house -house basis, street-by-street street and area-by-area. Area. So that is a key uh, uh, thing which we need to get right. We, we don't know what the government's doing there. We'll see their detailed proposals in the next uh, couple of months. Now, I'm down to my last slide, which is a summary of the recommendations we've made to government. So uh, the first one of those is, well, we recommended three years ago that we should aim to reduce emissions in 2050 by 80% on 1990 levels. Uh, that remains an appropriate ambition, having gone again and looked at the science three years later. By 2030, consistent with that, we should aim for a 60% emissions cut. And we have a 
uh, carbon budget now in legislation that is consistent with that 60% emissions cut. Now, the cost of meeting that budget rises over time. It doesn't rise really over the next five years, but over the next 20 years it rises to something like 1% of GDP. And that will show up in rising energy prices, but those energy price impacts, those costs are manageable, uh, and uh, they are particularly manageable when you look at the opportunity for energy efficiency improvement, when you put your policies in place to ensure that there isn't any competitiveness impact. There are clear benefits from being on this path, I've said, and those benefits are around building a sustainable economy and then acting early to build that. I mean, if that's where we're going, we need to be on the path early. Being on the path early will give us a range of benefits in terms of costs, in terms of uh, jobs, in terms of uh, energy bill reductions through energy efficiency improvement. But to be on that path, we need uh, new policies. It's not going to happen with the policies that we've had for the last 10 years because they haven't driven very significant emissions reductions. And those new policies, I've said in particular, uh, we should be looking to change our approach to the power sector and we should change our approach to energy efficiency. Now, I've been very techy up to now. I've talked in millions of tons and percentages of GDP. Uh, uh, and let me leave it with well, what would life be like if we can meet our carbon budgets? So imagine in 10 and 20 years, if we can achieve the carbon budgets in the way that I've said, we will wake up in the morning, we'll switch on our lights, and they will be, uh, I hope, uh, come from low carbon power generation, which will be no different, as far as you can see, at the consumer end to uh, the power generation that we've got now. We'll go downstairs, we'll open a, an energy efficient fridge, uh, we will turn on our boiler, and that will be an efficient boiler. Maybe it will be a heat pump as we get further out in time. We'll go to work on public transport. I think most people do that here, but outside London, again, there's an opportunity to do more of that. For those people who have to drive to work, maybe they'll drive an electric car. When you go out at the weekend, again, you might use public transport. You maybe, over time, will drive an electric car. You go to your office. Uh, you will work in an energy-efficient building, which will have decent controls, and certainly all the buildings I've worked in don't have decent controls, and you sit there being too cold in the summer and too hot in the winter. If we can change that, very simple to change from a technical point of view, but uh, it will have a significant emissions reduction. It will be better for us. And we might be working in the green economy. Arguably, I am working already in the economy uh, that is green. Other people are here as well, but there is a big opportunity. Uh, for me, that sounds pretty good. It certainly sounds pretty good compared to the alternative, which is a world where we are at risk of dangerous climate change. It is a price uh, worth paying, and my organisation will work closely with the government, with all of the other actors, to try to make sure that we achieve the carbon budgets to which we've legislated. So, thank you. Well, don't say you never get any content in these lectures. That's all I can say. Um, we will allow one or two people who have uh, other things, uh, I'm sure not better ones, but other, ones, other things to do uh, just to uh, depart quickly. And then uh, we're now open to you, so if you would like to ask a question or make a brief comment, um, uh, that would be good. If you can put your hand up, there are some mics, I think. Um, I'll take three or four at a time, which should make us more efficient in answering. So just for the ease of the mic, there's a uh, man in the front. The next man in the middle who's taken a very awkward position, really, to be asking a question, but the mic can go across. <coughs> um, any women want to ask a question? Uh, yes, there's a woman over there. So after this one, a woman over there, and the guy uh, third in there will be after 
man there. Right, let's start. If you could just say your name, uh, uh, then it helps us or helps uh, David answer the question. Hi, uh, I'm Anton de Chereprette. I'm at the uh, Grand Sam Institute here. Um, I come from France, and what is very striking when you come to the UK is that uh, the dream of every uh, British man is to live in an individual uh, house. Uh, so, you know, habitat is really spread spread out. But this, this has a cost in terms of uh, carbon emissions, I would say, you know, because of heating and, and transportation uh, emissions. So can you say a word of, uh, about housing policy that you would recommend? Thanks. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Philip Coughlin, retired engineer. Thank you very much for the talk. Uh, a very simple question. The advice you give to the government, is it published? Is it available to the public? And is the government's response always made public? Great, thank you. Lady over there. Oh, yes, it was in fact you, was it? Yes. Okay. Um, hi, I just wanted to know if you Tell could comment. Tell us who you are, please. Uh, uh, Liesl van Osten from an environmental research company. Um, I wondered if you could comment on newspaper reports recently about the government possibly reviewing the carbon budgets in 2014 and what the risk is of them backtracking. Great. Hi, uh, Rob, Rob Jones, an engineer. Um, my question is just a quick question. Do you ever foresee the need for a personal carbon trading budget? Um, does everybody know what a personal carbon trading uh, system would be or a personal carbon budget? This would be the idea which has been mooted in some circles that um, uh, instead of national budgets or as we now really have sectoral budgets, that actually every individual in the country would be given their own budget and would have to live within the carbon budget they were given uh, by the government, so effectively a form of rationing of carbon uh, allowances, but you could buy and sell so that people who wanted to live more frugally than their budget would be able to sell to those who wanted to live more, uh, more expensively, and that would in, in effect be a form of income redistribution as well. Um, I'm very interested to hear David's answer. We did look at this when I was in government, and I'm, uh, uh, I can tell you a little bit about how difficult it would be. Uh, if people are interested. Um, David, four questions. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> well, taking those in order, so have we thought about density of housing? I mean, the, the story we've told is one where you, you don't need to knock down the existing building stock and replace it with more dense, more energy efficient uh, housing, although that would be one way to go. Uh, so I, I don't think we need to do that, but I think what, what we have said is that for the new housing that we expect in the UK over the next decade, two decades, four decades, and I think the plan of the, the previous government was to add was it three million houses over the next decade. Well, there the focus should be on dense housing on brownfield sites in urban areas rather than spread out housing <coughs> in the middle of nowhere where people have to take long car journeys to do their shopping and, and get to work. So uh, there, there is an important aspect around dense housing for the new houses. I don't think you need to knock down our building stock at the moment in order to meet the kind of carbon budgets and targets that uh, we have suggested. Is our advice published? Yes, it is. So I've got very carried away. I, I just noticed I've, I never realised how long I'm talking for when I stand on a stage. I've spoken for uh, a few minutes longer than I was supposed to. I'm summarising there maybe 1,500 pages of published analysis, which is backed up by a few thousand other pages as well. It's all on our website. So if you go to uh, www.theccc.org.uk, you will find it there under reports. Now, the government... Uh, is required to respond to all of the things that we say. So under the Climate Change Act, it has to publish a response. 
Uh, it has done that, and you can look on the DEC website and find their responses. On the fourth budget, the particular issue of the fourth budget, they haven't responded yet. Uh, they will be responding in the next month or two when they will publish what's called the Autumn Strategy. They call it the Autumn Strategy. It will be published before December the 25th. Um, uh, that will set out the vision of this government to decarbonise the economy over the next two decades. Now, will that have a, a negative vision? I think that leads into the next question. So George Osborne at the Conservative Party conference said, we're going to look again at this ambition. We don't want to be out of step with Europe. And I think people have worried about what that might mean. Uh, personally, I'm not too worried about what it means for the carbon budgets. And actually... We suggested in the debates and discussions around the fourth carbon budget that at some point it would have to be reviewed because it has to be aligned with uh, the UK's share of the EU ETS cap. So there is a technical reason why you need that review. It's probably a bit sooner than we would have said. So we, we thought a review in 2017-18 would be appropriate. The compromise with the, the cross-whitehall politics was that the review would be in 2014. Now, do I think the budget will be changed? Uh, taking into account what George Osborne has said, I think the answer is no. Uh, it will be very difficult to change the legislative carbon budget because of the way that the, the Climate Change Act is, is designed. I think we would do the review, it's not the government. We have to identify a very significant change in the circumstances upon which the budget was set and it's hard to see what that change will be over the next couple of years. So I can't see us recommending a change. Uh, it's very difficult, I've said, for the government to depart from our advice and it will be more difficult for them on this one, on this review to depart at that time than it was uh, when they initially accepted the advice on the fourth budget and legislated it. So I think if they wanted to reject our advice, they had the opportunity and that's gone. Now, I don't think we should be complacent because I've said there's an importance of legislating budgets, but we need the policies and the funding to deliver those budgets. And I think that's where the risk is, that we, we will keep the budgets, but whether we have the policy ambition and the funding uh, remains an open question and as long as there is a, a negative narrative about low carbon which there is at the moment in government circles at least and that negative narrative is around growth where nobody uh, in the key departments apart from debt buys the green growth story there's a negative narr narrative about energy price impacts well if those things persist and become more pronounced then you, know, you can see scenarios where in the next spending review the low carbon agenda is not funded properly and it needs very significant funding going between 2015 and 20, and I think that's why the focus needs to be on turning around this narrative over the next two and three years to prepare for those decisions in the spending review. So we need a, a positive narrative, that's what we're focused on, but it can't just be as it needs to be everybody who supports this agenda. Personal carbon trading, we haven't looked at in detail. I think I agree with Michael, it's very complex. I think to introduce it now uh, is unnecessary, so if you look at the various sectors we're trying to reduce emissions. We've got policies which we think will work, which will not be disruptive, and I think a personal carbon trading re regime would be disruptive from a number of perspectives. One of them, Michael has said, is from a, an income distribution perspective, it would redistribute income. Uh, whether we might need personal carbon trading in the future, well, I think we will need a carbon price on everything further out in time as you get into the 2030s and 40s, and one way of implementing that would be through personal carbon trading schemes, it's not the only way. So I think it's there not to rule out for the future. I think it's urgent to introduce it now. I think it's one of a range of options that we might revert to further out in time when we are properly on the low carbon path. Thank you very much. Uh, it might be worth adding that uh, although all the government, uh, the government response is all published, 
Uh, not everything uh, David said uh, will be published. There won't be a minority report uh, to it signed by Vince Cable, and, um, George Osborne and one or two other people that were uh, mentioned there. Um, uh, the uh, date of the end of December is an autumn statement, I can tell you, sounds to me prompt, having been in government. We always used to say things would be in the new year, and anything that occurred before the October of the following year was in the new year, as far as we were concerned. Um, let's have some more questions. Um, I've got uh, somebody at the front, uh, somebody in the second row there, uh, a man with his hand up in the, uh, near the back, and uh, a man right in the middle. Yes, that's right. That was you. Yes, the woman, the woman there who's next to the, who's now got the microphone. You, why don't you start as you've got the microphone? Um, how successful do you think Tell the us who green? You are, please. Catherine Harris from DEC. I was wondering how successful you think the Green Investment Bank will be in mobilising private investment in low carbon technology. Hi, uh, my name is Leo Barassi. Um, wonder if you could comment on two things about international issues. First, I was struck that you didn't um, spend much time talking about aviation um, and its this implication then that it's not a particularly uh, important thing to focus on. Um, and secondly, is there a risk um, of there being a perverse incentive to outsource uh, a lot of high carbon uh, uh, industries uh, if they're not being counted on the books? Um, and should they then be being counted on the box? Thank you very much. Could that mic go to the man in the blue shirt and glasses who was the... Yeah, no, no, in front of you. <coughs> yes, yeah, yes, you. Um, and then the guy who's got the mic now is in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Peter Kirby Harris from Queen Mary College. How do you factor in potential population growth to your calculations for carbon budget? I, do you, how, have you, how would you respond to the OECD's uh, projection that the UK population may actually rise by 10 to 15 million by 2050? Great, thank you very much indeed. Uh, my name is Guy Rickard, I work for a consultancy. Um, I uh, wondered if you could tell me um, how much you think the UK strategy should include um, consideration of embodied carbon in products. So. Um, given that we could potentially outsource some carbon um, by buying it from, a, from a good, when goods are manufactured at, uh, abroad. Great, thank you very much. Take, can you take those four, David? Yeah. Uh, Green Investment Bank, I think, is potentially very important. And I think it's potentially important in two areas. I've, I've talked about the need to decarbonise the power sector and the need to decarbonise buildings as well, and, and both residential and non residential. Now, uh, this could, in the past, have, have been done through uh, on-balance sheet financing of the energy companies, but where we are at the moment, the energy companies can't do all of the, the major investments that we need over the next decade on their balance sheet, so they can't guarantee bank debt and say that they'll pay it back from their cash flows, their existing assets. And that takes you to, sorry, it takes you to say we've got to find off-balance sheet ways of financing uh, all of the things we need, or many of them, and the Green Investment Bank has a role to play. We know that there isn't really a market for off-balance sheet project financing of investments at the moment. The banks are reluctant to get involved in that. Institutional investors are not even in the space of low carbon on the whole, and the Green Investment Bank can bring all of that together so it can provide comfort, it can pull in uh, new sources of investment, it can make the banks feel comfortable uh, in both these spaces. So the low carbon power generation, particularly offshore wind, I think it has the major role to play and then on the residential energy efficiency improvement where it can underwrite the financing for the, uh, the Green Deal. Aviation, I've said, is very important. Uh, I could have spoken for 
much more than an hour if I'd brought in aviation and shipping. So we, we have done a detailed review of this. Uh, now, I've said aviation emissions have to be included because they're too big not to be included. If you don't include them, you wouldn't achieve your climate objective. Aviation emissions at the moment in the UK are about 40 million tonnes, which is a small proportion of total emissions at the moment. But if you look at the 160 million tonnes envelope in the future, well, it becomes 25%. Uh, if we don't do anything, actually, aviation emissions will grow over time because we know as people get richer, they want to fly more, and so increased demand, increased fuel consumption will translate to increased emissions. Ed Miliband asked us to do a review where we looked at the options to get back to 2005 level emissions, and there is a set of options there around technology, uh, operational uh, improvement, and, and behaviour change. So the focus now needs to be on developing a strategy that can deliver emissions back at 2005 levels. If we can do that, then uh, we can tell a story about how we can meet the 80% target. We don't need an 80% cut in aviation. Now, I think there were two questions that uh, are related, which was about consumption rather than production-based accounting for emissions. So the Climate Change Act only looks at emissions that are uh, created in uh, the UK. It doesn't look at uh, embodied emissions uh, which we import from other countries. So uh, emissions associated with manufacturing in China, which is then imported to the uh, UK. Uh, I think if we look at the consumption-based approach, I, I don't think it's going to tell us that what we're focused on now uh, is a silly thing to do. So it will still make sense that we should try and reduce our production-based emissions, decarbonise our power sector. It may tell us that we need to do more. So I think we need to understand our carbon footprint. Uh, and then we need to say, well, what does this mean for carbon budgets? Do they need to be more stringent? Or is it something we can deal with through the international framework, through a global agreement, through uh, export taxes from China or import taxes to the EU or, or whatever. That is something we're going to do a review of uh, next year, so I'll be able to say more about them. Population growth. We have made our recommendations on the basis of official projections of population growth, which have, for the UK, pretty significant uh, growth envisaged over the next four decades. So, I mean, to the extent that there is a deviation from uh, that official projection which we used back in 2008, then carbon budgets will either be harder or easier to meet depending on whether there is more or less uh, population growth than we factored in at that time. I think the other key area, and we're going to publish a review of the future of bioenergy, uh, both in the UK and globally, we're going to publish a review of that in the next three or four weeks. There is a very important issue around uh, how much bioenergy can we plan to have in a world where the global population is going from seven to 9 billion plus over the next four decades where that population will need to be fed and where if we're going to feed the population at that level particularly a richer population uh, eating more land intense red meat well there won't be a lot of land left for growth of energy crops which we can use for biofuels for example as I say if you uh, look out in the next three or four weeks you will see uh, we're going to publish a report in that area Great, thank you very much indeed um, did I take it from that, David, that when you say you're going to be looking at um, the issues of, of uh, embodied carbon, um, you're going to be looking at, at the possibility of or the rationale for using border tax adjustments of various kinds? Well, that's one of the things we touch on. One of the things you mean. It's the kind of obvious thing to, to uh, mitigate those emissions. Yeah. Um, the other thing, it's just worth, I mean, it's just worth saying this issue of embodied carbon. Um, it is not as if nothing is happening in the countries that we import uh, uh, manufactured goods from, including China, which is on quite a significant, um, I mean, if it keeps to its plans, which it has done in the past, quite a significant reduction in the, in the intensity of its emissions. 
Um, and carbon, China indeed has an its own tax, tax on its energy intensive exports. Um, so it isn't, it isn't as if, as one of the mis bits of misinformation uh, that's going around, that nothing is happening in the countries we, we import um, manufactured goods from. The, the argument that is made, though, is that effectively our emission reductions, which are shown on your, on your tables, namely the UK's, um, effectively disguise the fact that part of that emissions reduction, certainly over the previous 20 years, the last 20 years, and potentially over the next, arises because of the movement of, of manufactured and uh, industry to countries, other countries. So, in effect, where it shows that the UK's emissions have been falling, that is, in a sense, a, uh, uh, an illusion. So the argument, the argument partly about this is about the, the, the it seems to me, is about the sort of, uh, just our nature of the understanding of what's happening to our own emissions and so on. So yeah. that's, um, but the question then what you do with it is a different one, which is about whether China should take action of its own or whether we should be moving to import uh, tax adjustments or, uh, or whatever. That's a very interesting question. It's very interesting that you'll be looking at this next year because it's obviously, it involves trade policy as well as climate policy, which is um, highly sensitive. Highly sensitive and very interesting. Let's take a few more questions. It's 12 minutes to 8. Um, let's have one more round, I think, and let's see uh, who wants to, to ask. Um, Rosalady over there has no longer got a hand up, though she had it up earlier. I don't know whether you, you, you have revised your own view of your own uh, question. There's a guy immediately behind, um, uh, behind you with a mic. Yes, why don't, why don't we get one from, from here? Um, another man at the back. Yes, yeah, the other mic, that's right. Why don't that one go up there? Um, guy in the middle uh, down here and a woman on the end here, so when you've got that. Okay, the mic for you. Uh, Rob Walker from uh, representing car manufacturers. I, I was just interested, David, in you, you talked about early adopters and um, how it's, it, there, there is a good argument for early adoption. Um, but I'm conscious that, that there are also arguments against in terms of uh, the, the cost that comes to early adopters, for instance, we've seen that already with early adopters of some of the renewables technologies, and you know, so that you pay you pay more as an early adopter than you would if you come with when the economies of scale have come and the learning has already come. So I'd just be interested in your views on on that point. Great, thanks. I've forgotten I asked. Who has the mic now? Uh, David Aitken from Carbon Trust. Great. You mentioned a couple of uh, things that you're looking at in the uh, shipping report coming out this week, bioenergy in the next few weeks, uh, and some of the consumption work uh, next year. Uh, which other specific issues are you planning to look at uh, in, in the near future? Okay. Great, thank you. Um, and yes, man here. Thank you for reminding me. Hi, um, Mark, a geography student. Um, I'm just interested in knowing how important or relevant you think an international agreement is in getting pressure on the UK to deliver the carbon budget that has been proposed. Okay. Thank you very much. Mundera. Hi, Mandera. I'm just a concerned individual. Um, Don't say just. <laughs> okay. So going back to during your presentation, you mentioned that residential heat considerably dwarfs non-residential heat and the government has a number of policies in place such as subsidizing solar panels um, installations and paying for excess energy to be uh, delivered back to the grid. I've read reports that this is likely to be reduced or removed in the coming years. Um, why would the government take steps backwards and 
Is there anything that can be done to encourage the individual to do more? Thanks. Great. Thank you very much. David. Okay. Now, early action I can answer in two ways. And, and the way we've looked at this is uh, for the economy as a whole and then for the specific sectors of the economy. If we take the economy as a whole and uh, you, you look at a path which is based on early action and then you consider, well, let's not reduce emissions now, let's deliver the same cumulative budget, but let's do it later on, you end up having to do a lot of very expensive stuff further out in time. And uh, our assessment is it doesn't make sense to do that. So you've got to have pretty expensive near-term measures before you want to start delaying those uh, till further out in time. At the uh, sectoral level, I think you said you came from the car industry, we, we've recommended uh, uptake of electric vehicles over the next two decades before they are strictly cost effective. So the cost penalty of electric cars is more than the carbon price. But that puts us on a path, and if you believe there is a path dependency to penetration of electric vehicles in the country, then it puts you on a path which, in a dynamic sense, although you pay a bit more up front, uh, you benefit in the future. And the alternative there is that we're not on the electric car or low carbon vehicle path, um, that we end up having uh, a big penalty to pay further out in time. And again, the kind of penalties we're talking about with current battery costs for electric vehicles are not enough to justify delaying and having that different story where we uh, uh, are on the low carbon vehicle path later on. You can have a similar story for heat pumps, which uh, are actually justified within the current carbon price, even though they will come down in cost over time. So you look at each of the measures, you look at the economy-wide story, it all takes you to the same situation. Uh, which is we should act early. Now, that, that only works if we're going to be in a carbon-constrained world. So if we come on to the international, uh, I don't think it's, it's crucial that we get an international agreement in order to proceed here to try to achieve carbon budgets because those carbon budgets are in legislation and the government is legally obliged to have strategies and policies in place which will deliver the budgets. I think uh, it is important that the world acts together. So it's hard to imagine a situation where we are uh, moving forward in the UK in three decades with no other country having done anything, uh, that wouldn't be plausible and I imagine in that situation we would rip up the Climate Change Act and do something else. That wouldn't be a, a good way forward though, because we'd be in a world of dangerous climate change risks. So in order to keep the longer term commitment to our efforts in this country, uh, it is important that there is global effort to reduce emissions reduction. Within that, is it crucial we have a, a global deal? I think it will be very helpful to have a global deal. I think that has to be the end point. I think that has to cement all of the, the national efforts. But I think whereas the focus was on getting that global deal and the top down and then the countries responding a couple of years ago since Copenhagen and the Copenhagen Accord and, and uh, uh, Michael has said, well, there are things happening in many countries around the world now from China, which has got its intensity targets to South Korea, India, possibly to a lesser extent. Uh, Australia is even moving forward now with its climate change legislation. Uh, European countries, we talked about France, uh, which has got a commission operating at the moment to work out its path towards its long-term target. So there is a lot happening. I think there's a lot of room for optimism when you look at that country-level effort, and ideally that will be brought together in a binding global agreement over time. Uh, uh, I don't think that will be any time soon. I don't think it will happen this year in Durban. I wouldn't have thought it will happen next year, I think the year after is when maybe we would get a global deal that will build on these efforts and that will reinforce what we're doing in this country. But uh, as I said, I don't think it's a necessary condition for our efforts now over the next few years 
to drive down emissions to get that step change and to meet our carbon budgets. Specific things that we'll be looking at over the next few months, uh, we have been asked to do a, a piece of work by Greg Barker, who's the Minister for Climate Change, on whether we should have local carbon budgets, so for local authorities in the UK, you know, what those might include, uh, what local authorities might do to drive emissions down in their area. So that will be published next spring. Uh, we have to, under the Climate Change Act, advise the government on whether aviation and shipping should be in our climate change framework and our carbon budgets and targets. Again, we'll advise on that next spring. Uh, and we'll do our annual parliament report next June. And once we've done all of those things, and bear in mind we're not a huge organisation, so there's a limit to what we can do, but once we've done that, we will turn to our review of uh, competitiveness and carbon leakage, which is where we will then look at the uh, the issue of uh, consumption, uh, the, the carbon footprint of the UK. Beyond that, we'll have to start work on the review of the fourth carbon budget. Uh, we'll have to start work on a retrospective of how has the government uh, and the country performed against the whole of the first carbon budget, which is a big report to do. And uh, we will then think about the fifth carbon budget, which has to go in legislation in about four years' time. So uh, a lot of work for us to do over the next two or three years. And finally, solar panels, well, uh, it was announced yesterday that the, the subsidy for solar panels is going to be cut very significantly. Now, is that a, a problem from a, a carbon budget perspective? I think probably not, because we don't see solar as having a major role to play over the next decade or two decades, maybe as you get into the 2030s. It can make a big contribution, maybe for the second half of the century. Uh, that will be the technology of choice. Uh, in the power sector, but for us it, it didn't have a, a major contribution to make and it was pretty expensive actually. Uh, uh, what's happened is there is a limit on what debt can finance across the range of the low carbon agenda. That envelope is fixed by the Treasury and given the envelope they had to choose between do we want to finance offshore wind, uh, energy efficiency improvement or solar and I think solar is the thing that I had to give that because it gave least bang for the buck. So, and what it does do is there's a set of things now which are changes in government policy and that's never good from a, an investor perspective where you want certainty. So we've got to be careful uh, as far as the government is concerned around further changes in policy. It comes after uh, we've had a failure to deliver the first CCS demonstration project which again doesn't give a great signal about the direction of travel. So uh, there's a need to set out the rules of the game going forward to be very clear about them to make sure they are the right rules of the game focused in the right areas and then not to change them to stick with them and to get the investments moving and if we can do that then i think we will be uh, successful great um i think this is probably the time to call it uh, to a close we're very close to eight um, I'm sure there were other questions, many of which I'm sure can be answered if you go to the uh, uh, Committee on Climate Change's website. Um, so I would recommend that. It's actually, uh, and they also, there's also a newsletter which I think one can subscribe to. Yes. Um, and a blog. Which is, uh, well. uh, and, and a blog. Which and may a tweet. Be, which may be going beyond uh, what's necessary for this audience. Um, uh, the, uh, it is a, a mine of information actually about, uh, both about how. Uh, uh, British government, British policy is um, uh, uh, is doing in this field, and also the analytical uh, background and, and the sort of additional pages that, that on on how the analysis is conducted. Um, I have to say, our models of clarity in this field, which um, uh, is very much to, to David's credit. Um, I hope you've enjoyed that and found that interesting. Um, this is, I think, uh, a very interesting moment, uh, a long moment, a, a long moment of several years, um, uh, in which. 
um, a new approach to managing uh, an economy uh, um, within uh, environmental limits, within a carbon limit or a carbon budget, as we, we've, uh, they've now been called, um, is being tried. And um, it, it is, I think, very interesting to hear the thought process um, and the analytical processes which have gone, in, gone into that. The politics of this, as David has hinted at, are still fluid. Um, the Climate Change Act was passed with all party support at a time of, of uh, rapid economic growth and prosperity and general uh, uh, and a feeling the economy was, uh, it was um, uh, doing well. Uh, whether climate change policy can, can su um, survive and be maintained during much harder economic conditions where there is fragmenting cross-party support um, is a very interesting one. And one of the interesting roles um, uh, that I think we will all be looking at is, is whether or not the Committee on Climate Change climate change can maintain the independence and authority that it, is, uh, it has created for itself over the last few years and support that, uh, uh, support um, the policy making process uh, in those very differing economic and political circumstances that we are likely to face over the next few years compared to the last few. Um, I found it very stimulating to hear David's perspective um, uh, uh, on all of this um, and I hope uh, you will join me in thanking him very much for his lecture and questions and answers.